We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley and my co-host is usual, Joe Quinn. Hi there. This week we're speaking with a very special guest. He's author and editor Robin Ramsey. Robin has been editor and publisher of Lobster Magazine since it first appeared in 1983. He has also written a number of books, including Prone Cocktail Party, The Hidden Power of New Labor, and Who Shot JFK? Robin was also co-author of the book Smear, Wilson and the Secret State. For some 10 years, Robin also wrote a column in the Fortean Times magazine on conspiracy theories. You may have heard of Lobster magazine. If you haven't, it's a superb magazine. It's been going for some 32 years now. It's had all kinds of contributors, academics, journalists, and is today still published twice annually. The magazine focuses primarily on deep politics, parapolitics. That's the influence of intelligence and security services on politics and world trade. You should definitely check it out. Its website is lobster-magazine.co.uk. We're delighted that Robin is joining us today. So a very warm welcome to you, Robin. Hello. Good evening. Yeah, Robin, it's... uh... We, I've been aware of your of your magazine, of Lobster Magazine, for a long time. Um, just just one question: Had has it ever been in print? It began as a print magazine. It began in 1983. It was a long time ago, before computers, at least before people like me could afford computers. Uh-huh. So it was originally done in the old-fashioned way, with you know typewriters and gum and paste up, pasting up bits of paper in columns and offset lipo printing, and the original edition was 150 copies. And it was a print magazine, hard copy, until issue 57, I think, when it suddenly seemed absurd to be mithering about with, you know, mountains of paper when I could leave it on a website and it could be seen by anybody. It could be seen for nothing by anybody that wanted to uh, log on to it and see it. And it, it saved me a lot of work. Producing a magazine single-handed is an incredible chore. Yeah, uh, we kind of know that we, we produced a magazine for a while ourselves, just a couple of years, and then gave, gave it up because it was yeah. just too much work, you know. Uh, and also not a lot of people, I mean, the reach of a magazine compared to the net, it's just, uh, it, these days, it's it's very difficult to, to get hard copy of magazines on the people's noses, you know, when everybody's my, 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 my own view now is I should have gone online five years before... Um, if you, I mean, my view now is if you want to have some people to read things, put it online. Messing about with paper is a complete waste of time nowadays. Mm-hmm. Robin, just to get, uh, I have a question here, just to kind of maybe mm-hmm. get straight into uh, in, in the topic. Uh, your, your research and writing, you know, over the, over the many years you've been doing it, has focused on, I think, what you called, uh, I thought, in the, in the latest edition of. Uh, of lobster, and it focuses on surface world, the surface world of politics, and the covert world of politics. 
So if it's not too okay. difficult to to do it, could you describe the difference between those two? Well, that, that's interesting. I, I, I'm never sure. I mean, Rob's focus has shifted. My own focus has shifted. I haven't been restoring mm-hmm. the same patch of dirt for 30, whatever it is. I originally got, I began, you have to go back a long way. I began, I, I approached British politics having got interested in American politics and then having, then having got interested in American parapolitics, the term used, uh, invented by Peter Dale Scott. Peter Dale Scott was very important to me. Peter Dale Scott, A, introduced that nice term. Also, Peter Dale Scott showed me how to do research. He showed me how to write it. And I, from, the, from the very first issue of the magazine, it was very important to me that if I was going to say something, there had to be evidence. Mm-hmm. So Lobster is full of citations. There's hardly anything in Lobster that hasn't got a citation attached to it, a footnote. So that was the important. Now, Peter Dale Scott was interested in parapolitics. So I began in the sense of a kind of naive Kennedy conspiracy buff in the 70s. And then it occurred to me, it was, and then if you follow the Kennedy thing, you're into the CIA, mm-hmm. post-war history, the Cold War, you're into media manipulation, you're into all this stuff. And it began to dawn on me that you could start looking at British politics through the same set of eyes. It was much more difficult to do here because there were so there were many there were much many fewer sources. Britain in those days certainly and still is, I think, a much more closed society. Even in the seventies, America even in the seventies in the days of hard copy print, America had a much bigger underground news world uh, than Britain ever did. Uh, so I began by as it were looking at the looking at the Labour left, for example, and why it failed through the eyes of somebody who had studied the CIA first, which was a, a strange perspective, a strange perspective at mm-hmm. the time. Right, and uh, <laughs> that was yeah, that was a yeah, it was a strange perspective. I mean, you, you study, you've, you still write quite a lot about. Uh, you still focus in, in your Lobster magazine. You still focus on the JFK assassination as new uh, kind of. The odd new detail might come up. Uh, sure, sure. And um, but I mean, what's your? Um, I, I think I know what your take on the JFK assassination is, but it's it's pretty mainstream, right? Uh, mainstream conspiracy theory, let's say. Um, I would say it's my it's a minority view within the Kennedy assassination the assassination buff world. It's a very it's and it's not a popular view at all. The thing about I, I know I now think it's pretty clearly been demonstrated now. That in fact, this huge event and the Kennedy assassination was an enormous event. It, we, we got we got another you know 50 years of Cold War after that because Kennedy and Khrushchev were trying to wind the Cold War down. Right. But when Kennedy got killed and then Khrushchev was overthrown, we then got more bloody Cold War. We still uh-huh. got more Cold War because there's a third Cold War being generated in the Ukraine and Eastern Europe and Estonia by the Americans again. They're at it again, but. I think the Ken- I think Kennedy was killed. He was simple, banal domestic politics. His deputy, uh, Vice President Johnson, was about to be done for corruption. A lot of people had given Johnson a lot of money in the previous 20 years, 30 years, 20 years, and it was all, they were all going to go down the pan. And the only way they could work out to prevent this, I mean, and this was being driven by the Kennedys. The Kennedys themselves wanted Johnson off the ticket for the 1964 election, they wanted to dump Johnson, and they, they were letting this prosecution of, this investigation of him 
by the Justice Department, go ahead. Johnson was about to get prosecuted and dumped. And the only way they could see how to prevent this was to make Johnson the president. As soon as he became president, all the inquiries ended. So in that sense, the Kennedy buff world, collect the big Kennedy buff world, I mean, the serious people, the people who spent their lives in it, and I'm just a dabbler by their standards. Mm-hmm. They don't like this idea. It's not big enough. They wanted to be something much bigger than this. It was just about money and careers. And that, that, that is profoundly unsatisfying to most of the Kennedy boss who think it must be the CIA and uh-huh. geopolitics or Vietnam or something uh-huh. really big. It was just boring old American corruption. Okay, but then just to, uh, to bring it back to the point you first raised, that then is followed by a second Cold War or renewal of it. This is then a kind of a, a happy coincidence for certain players in the U.S. establishment. Sure. So that's more coincidental, an alignment well, of interest. Well, the question that would bring up uh, that angle you're, mm-hmm. that you're promoting, Robin, is that, you know, that was, that was the, the Johnson gang were kind of unique to, to a large extent in U.S. politics and that there haven't been many other uh, you know, people who are high up in the U.S. kind of political world who being faced with being ousted would... Uh, orchestrate a, an assassination against the president. You know, that, that's why people, I think, think that there might have been something else behind it, because that's a bit of an extreme approach to take this, to, to the thought of you being ditched, you know? Surely Johnson's people could have just sided with the next guy type thing, or, or sided with Kennedy, you know? <laughs> yes, it was a very unusual event, but then Johnson, to my knowledge, and I haven't, I haven't read it, obviously I haven't read anything in the literature on this is now vast, but to my knowledge, Johnson was the only major American politician who was actually running his own crime unit, I mean, his right. own criminal gang. Mm. Essentially, he was head of a criminal gang in Texas. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's, as well, that's what I mean. Lots of American politicians are corrupt. I mean, most of them, I would guess, are, are corrupt in the sense they take huge amounts of money from people to whom they owe favors, which I would define as corruption. The Americans don't see it that way. They just see this is how politics is played. Yeah. But Johnson's unusual. They actually, they, his gang in Texas actually had a gunman on their staff mm. um, who bumped people off periodically, um, seven or eight that we're pretty sure of. Right. Going back to the going back to 1951, um, it's difficult now to recreate the world in which LBJ was operating. The world of Texas in 1950s. It was a very very long way away from Washington. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, extre- it was extremely, um, it was only 18 years since the Alamo. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there were people alive in, in Dallas and Johnson was there who remembered who'd been at the Alamo, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. So it was the Wild West with yeah. that kind of mentality. And they just shot people. And they just happened to shoot the president as well. But they didn't see it as a big deal, that big a deal to them. He was just another event politician as far as they were. To, he was just another politician, one of them. But yes, a big event, and I'm afraid I am still interested, in it, or even though hardly anybody else is. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a long time, and a lot has been said about it. I mean, you can you can forgive people for just walking away from it. Yawning, yawning, and yawning, and moving on to the next space. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm not I'm never remotely, I'm never surprised or um, insulted if people say I don't care about JFK. It's too far away. Yeah, or even Absolutely. even people who say, yeah, he was assassinated, but yeah, it's a long time ago, and what are you going to do? We've got bigger problems right now, anyway. Absolutely. That, that kind of um, 
brings me brings me into what I was going to say. What you mentioned about um, so you were you got interested in the JFK assassination, and but then you moved into kind of uh, British started looking at British politics and uh, the Labour government and stuff. And I think was it fairly quickly that you started to see some, unlike in the US and JFK, you started to see some evidence of uh, intelligence agency involvement in in the politics in the UK. Uh, that didn't really happen until the middle 80s, so there was a period from sort of 76 to 86, really, where there was very little of, of there was very little material of that kind available. Mm. There were bits and pieces coming out of Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland in the 70s and, in, and, and still into the 80s, which were the, the British secret state on, and the military were most active. I mean, there were dribs and drabs coming from historians about the empire, but insofar as we knew anything much about the organization of the British secret state, it was through looking at events in Northern Ireland. Uh-huh. And, and in the late 70s, there was hardly anything. There was uh, one book by Tony Bunyan called The, the Political Police in Britain, in which he pulled together all the little fragments that were then extant um, about special branch and uh, surveillance. And none of this stuff existed really before the late 70s. When Duncan Camel, for example, produced the first articles about GCHQ, before his articles, I don't think anybody in Britain, or especially in Parliament, had any idea that GCHQ existed, let alone what it did. This is all pretty recent, all this. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, but the stuff about the intelligence services and about the Wilson, about the events against Wilson, happened really in the, from the mid 80s onwards, and to a very large extent were triggered by my connecting up with Colin Wallace. Uh-huh. It was Wallace who pointed me in that direction. And of course, having been given the appropriate steer, as it were, I went back to the library and began looking at the literature and discovered there was a whole bunch of stuff there that I hadn't noticed before. So, yeah. So that kind of that kind of makes the point that when you mention Wilson, Harold Wilson, the former British Prime Minister, you mentioned that uh, I mean there's books out there and you've done uh, a lot of writing and research on the plot against Wilson. So uh, and that was um, a British intelligence agency plot to get rid of a, a sitting Prime Minister. Uh, it was that was it a was. mafia kind of corporate mob well, type thing. It was. It's now difficult to believe this, um, but in the early 1970s. Um, MI5, which is the British version of the FBI, which was in touch with a, fac- a faction or a fraction of the CIA, the counterintelligence people led by James Angleton. Mm. The Angleton's people were telling um, MI5 that Wilson was a communist agent. Yeah. Angleton's people were, were being told this by a Soviet defector uh, who was mad, but that's a <laughs> digression. So MI, a section of MI5 believed this. A section, some of MI, most of MI5, I suspect, didn't believe this because they met Wilson. But they believed there was a communist plot to take over the Labour Party and then the government. So in the FA 1972-3, we had a conservative government in power led by Edward Heath. There was there were considerable kind of underground machinations by a group of MI5 officers, some in the military some in MI6, but mostly MI5, who believed, and as far as I can tell, genuinely believed, well, based on their sources in the CIA, that there was a real-life, honest-to-God, KGB conspiracy to seize control in Britain. This, of course, to anybody who was then on the left, or close to the left, as I had been most of my life, 
was absolutely hysterically funny. Because the idea that the British Communist Party could take over anything was a joke. Mm-hmm. I mean, the British Communist Party in 1973 had, I don't know, 10,000 members maybe, um, of whom 2,000 were working for MI5 probably. Because mm-hmm. as we now know, MI5 completely infiltrated the Communist Party, just as the FBI had done in America with the CPUSA. Mm-hmm. So it, to a very large extent, the Communist Party in Britain was being run by MI5, funded by MI5, and propped up by MI5. But so their theory was there. Wilson is, Wilson is a communist, and the KGB are running the trade unions, and the trade unions are on the Labour Party, and if we don't stop them, we'll have East Germany. But, you know, they, were, they genuinely believed, I think, that Britain is on the verge of becoming East Germany and falling into the Soviet orbit, which, of course, was of considerable interest to the Americans, who don't, who, you know, because this was the Cold War still. Mm-hmm. That was the background to all the stuff that was going on in the 70s, all these machinations and smear, smear stories and burglaries and surveillance and bugging and, you know, the, so, what we know, the usual stuff. Yeah, so just to be clear, you think that at that time MI5 did actually, I mean, uh, the top tier of MI5 did believe, or MI6 did believe that uh, there was a communist plot around Wilson? Some of them, not all. It was it was a split. These organizations are not homogeneous. Right. They're not uniform. They've got factions and camps within them. It's not it's not a it's not a straight down you know hierarchical top down thing. So there was a section of MI5F branch, chiefly, in which these notions resided. F, the people in that branch believed they were dealing with a serious communist threat. Because the West was on the rise. The unions were on the rise. The miners' workers had, had defeated the East government in 1972. Hmm. Uh, the, the Labour left, which had some communist sympathizers, communist fellow travellers, they were on the rise in the party. The party was moving left. There was no question about this. But it's one thing to say the Labour Party was moving left. It's not something else to say, and the KGB is controlling it. Of the KGB's control, there never was any evidence, and nobody's ever produced any. And now that the, cold, the war, when the wall fell in 89, when the Berlin Wall fell in 89, and we got this torrent of people from the Eastern, Eastern Bloc came to the West, and they were asked, where are you, where are you running the Communist Party? Party of Great Britain, of course, what that produced was gales of laughter. It's a ridiculous idea. Basically, as if, if only. But that's what they believe. It's not difficult to understand why. We are all trapped in our own perceptions. We're all trapped in our own theories. We all screen things that we don't want to see. We all suffer from what's it called? um, uh, Cognitive dissonance? Well, no, we, yeah, cognitive is an expression about confirmation. Uh, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's a very, very, very useful expression. One has to work terribly hard not to be completely paralyzed by confirmation bias. And in the 70s, MI5 and bits of six and bits of the army were completely, and the IRD, of course, the Information Research Department, which still exists. They were all suffering from a major case of confirmation bias. And every, and they saw everything through, this, through the eyes of this communist conspiracy theory. Which leads me, if I, if I may continue rambling on, to one of those interesting things. We're now living in the golden age of conspiracy theory. You know, there's endless, endless stories in the major media, media now sneering at conspiracy theories. Oh, lunatics, lunatics, lunatics. The big, the, the big 
by 30 years ago, 40 years ago, were all coming from uh, the security services, and they were all about the KGB. In 1972, the only conspiracy theories you could find in Britain were two kinds. One was the stuff coming through the Daily Telegraph from MI5 about the communists running the union, and the other would have been on the far right about the, the usual Jewish conspiracy theory, which still existed in Britain on the far right. There were no other conspiracy theories of any kind in this country. I mean, you never saw them. They just weren't there. Mm -hmm. stop. Yeah, okay. Yeah, very often, I mean... The first person to call a conspiracy theory, it comes from some authoritative source, and it's kind of like a blanket projection onto anything. That Very might... important point. Projection yeah. is the key. What you had in Britain was a bunch of people who were professionally engaged in conspiracy. IRD, MI5, MI6, special branches. These are all professional these are people who were, whose job was to conspire, in their case, to conspire to penetrate the left. That they were all conspiratorially minded completely, and they projected like mad. They projected their view of the world onto us. I never, I never bothered to check whether any of it was true. Hmm. So project confirmation, but excuse me, that's my virus talking. Confirmation bias and projection are the two big problems that we all suffer from if we're trying to make sense of all this vast field of data that we now have to play with. Yeah. Okay. So. Let me see. Maybe this question doesn't really have an answer, but when you say confirmation bias, what kind of bias were these people in the establishment? Because a lot of people are going to MI5 and MI6 and the intelligence agencies are, you know, they're a particular, a particular type. At least they were maybe uh, 30 or 40 years ago. So what kind of bias or what kind of ideology do these people hold to that would, uh, was it simply a us versus them kind of thing? Or was there any kind of a uh, what was their ideology? What is the ideology of the intelligence uh, services? Mm, well, of course, there, there, is no, there, was no sen there was no single ideology. But if, as far as I can tell, centrally they believed <coughs> excuse me, that they were on the good... <coughs> no problem. That there was a global struggle between the forces of darkness, i.e. the red, the commies, and the forces of light, i.e. Western Europe, America, progress, democracy. I mean, I know she had Bill Bloom on, and even even listen, even talk about the same things about America. This is what they believed. They believed they were the good guys fighting the bad guys. It was white hats and black hats. Mm -hmm. There used to be this column in, uh, in in Mad Magazine called Spy versus Spy mm -hmm. back in the sixties, and there was a bunch of spies wearing white hats and a bunch of spies wearing black hats. Right, and they were they ran around blowing each other up and shooting each other and. That's all it was. But in Britain, in MI5, in MI5 and MI6, there are distinctions to be drawn there. But roughly speaking, they thought they were the good guys. Lots of them were, I would describe them as well-intentioned but naive patriots. Mm. They were patriotic. They believed the queen, queen and country, you know, queen and country, free market, capitalism, uh, homeowning, democracy, the mother of parliament, houses of parliament, and that was the way forward. That was the way into the light, and anybody who, who opposed that, anybody who suggested, for example, that maybe private profit, private owning needs production, wasn't such a good idea, was you know was a bad guy. So, would it be fair to say that these people um, in the intelligence agencies kind of had this view that um, they were the the guardians 
of all the the British, let's say, and that you couldn't trust the politicians because they could be infiltrated or they could be left-wingers or commies or stuff. Exactly. But you have an old guard in the intelligence agencies who are, you know, kind of colonial mindset, maybe, yeah. or from that, and they were MI5. there to... MI5, certainly a lot of MI5 officers after the war were recruited from, um, from the Empire. Mm. And that's certainly through MI5. MI5 saw themselves as, uh, as the guardians of... British society, and I can't remember what their slogan is, but their slogan, mm-hmm. their motto is something about guardians. Mm-hmm. MI6 is a more, is a more subtle, uh, they're not nearly, MI6 basically were much were brighter than MI5, and they were much more recruited from the upper classes. The MI, MI5 were often recruited from what we might call the middle orders. MI6 was, you know, the elite of the elite, and they recruited largely from Oxbridge and high, at the higher echelon, and they're some very, very bright people there, very bright people, and they didn't have this naive, most of them anyway, mm. didn't have this simple-minded, patriotic view of the world. They, 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 they knew they were engaged in a struggle, but they also knew that the KGB people they were working against were rather like them. I mean, mm. the KGB was the elite of Soviet society, mm. just as MI6 at some level was the, bits of MI6 certainly, were the elite of British society. Right. And, not for nothing. It was called the Great Game. Mm-hmm. And they never killed each other. I mean, you know, people in their mathics didn't go around shooting KGB people, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it simply said it simply was a game. A very interesting game, and not terribly well paid, but, you know, you got your reward, you got your, your OBE or whatever, or your CK, CMG, and you got a decent pension at the end of it. But it was a game. It, 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 MI5 and IRD and the, uh, the, and the military people that took all this stuff seriously were simply making a mistake. And I think there's odd bits of evidence now that when it came to it, one of Harold Wilson, Prime Minister Wilson's major sources, one of the people who was telling him what was going on was uh, Maurice Oldfield, who was the, at the time, I think he was the Deputy Chief of MI6. So Wilson was being persecuted by, by these, these nutters and fools in MI5 and MI6, the MI6 chief was having a occasional meeting and saying, listen, old boy, don't worry about it. We know it's not like that, really. And by the way, look at this and look at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the causes of, that's one of the causes of the intense rivalry between MI5 and MI6, which used to exist and mm-hmm. may still exist. So that all, a lot of, a lot of stuff that the intelligence agencies did during the Cold War was justified by the Cold War and the communist threat and the, you know, us versus them ideologies and stuff. Uh, yeah. And they, they could have, uh, it could be, let's say, excused them for believing that and, and they, yeah. were, they were misguided but well-intentioned people. But now that there is no Soviet threat anymore, there's no commie threat, uh, why, why are intelligence agencies still taking the same kind of approach to, I mean, what has it shifted to? What is the potential uh, dissent in, in British society today that the, these same people have to fight against? Well, well, that's very interesting because what you saw after the, when I was following this, when the war went down in 1890 in the Soviet bloc collapsed, you could see, um, not MI6 particularly, because their brief just went beyond, their brief was the world. And, but MI5 in particular were scrambling around trying to find enemies. Right. And at one point, they, they made a big push to try and get their hands on the anti- on the drug traffic business, mm. uh, because that's all there was. Right. I mean, this is before this is before it's, uh, radical Islam. 
No, along comes radical Islam, just in the nick of time, and MI5 and all these couriers, all they're all saved now, they've got a real enemy again. Yeah. There was a period from 90, from 90 to, say, 90 to 99, really, when MI5 really had almost nothing to do. Because there was, apart from, there was still stuff going on in Ireland, but then when the, the, the Blair government you know, did the Belfast Agreement and wound all that down as well, then there was the prospect that MI5 really had almost, almost nothing to do. But then, of course, radical Islam came along, and people have made all kinds of claims that you know the intelligence services generated it on purpose, which I personally don't believe. But you can see why you might think that. Because it's coincidental, for sure. Very coincidental, very interesting coincidence, for sure. Um, and I think you could certainly make a better case for saying that the American military-industrial complex uh, certainly needed enemies after the Cold War, and uh, I mean. And they certainly were very happy to have the Middle East go up in smoke and produce a whole mm-hmm. generation of enemies for whom they would need more and more and bigger and better weapons. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. a lot of it is, a lot of, a lot of it is, especially the Americans, Britain is such a small player now, it hardly matters. But certainly with the Americans, it's, a lot of it is simply as banal as this. Big American corporations that make weapons need enemies, and by God, they get them. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're talking really here about uh, you know the, someone who's uh, or an organisation whose uh, existence is based on uh, uh, on the presence of an enemy of having an enemy to fight against and um, I mean certainly that's you know coming from the Cold War you can see how those intelligence agencies in the US and the UK and Europe uh, kind of grew and became what they are today. Uh, on the basis of that communist threat, the communist threat goes away. They're not going to just up, up, pack up their bags and leave, right? They, they need to find uh, something to do. So, um, yeah. and that's interesting because that's, that's a very, I mean, that, that's a very broad but a very true, I think, explanation of the kind of divide we see in the last ten, you know, maybe five, ten years, with with this kind of new Cold War, the third Cold War that you described. Because it seems to me that the the U.S. in particular and, and the U.K is continuing to look and even trying to, as you said in your recent Lobster uh, edition, trying to, they're investing in enemies uh, to kind of, because they need them for their existence. But um, Russia, on the other hand, seems to be kind of coming at it from the opposite direction where Russia seems to need uh, just, not maybe justify its existence, but to bolster its own existence and strengthen its own position. It needs friends. It, it seems to be, be pushing in the opposite direction in terms of trying to, to, Solve conflicts and uh, you know deal with these problems. You know, and that's very much uh, antagonistic, I think, towards what the the U.S. And, and and the Brits, for example, are are based on. You know. Yes. No. No. You're right. That's absolutely true. But but having said that, of course, within the, the existing Russian uh, Russian Federation, there is an arms lobby. There are military people. There are soldiers and missile designers and all the rest of it, and they're very happy to have. They're very happy to have the Cold War right. on running again as well. That's the problem. This is what mm. the problem that Khrushchev and Kennedy faced. They both faced their own um, military lobby, right. and they were both trying to wind it down. And it's one of the great tragedies. We come back to JFK again. It's one of the great tragedies of history that uh, this pathetic piffle with LBJ's career ended up bumping off Kennedy just at the point when it could conceivable that the Cold War might have been seriously wound down. If Kennedy got re-elected in 64, Khrushchev had stayed in power, which he might have done with Kennedy there, we might not have had the world as we have had it since 1964. Uh-huh. And that is one of the great ironies, isn't it? Some <clears throat> small, these, you know, hit gangsters in Texas 
um, you know, affected, well, this is on a major scale, without intending to particularly. Without, without WG, you might never have had Cold War II, for example. With Jimmy Carter, you know, and all the Jimmy Carter period and all this, the Cold War, the help with frontiers in the 80s. Yeah. It, but, it, yes, I, I, we come back to the old, old question, which is bedeviled, the, the, the people in the West looking at the Soviet Union and then Russia, which is, well, what are the Russians up to? Uh-huh. You know, because my parents were in the Communist Party in, up to 1956, so I grew up in, in a world in which it was, it was almost instinctive that the Soviets were on the side, on the, were the good guys. It took me a long time to shed that, uh, as well to my 20s before, that, that, that basic instinctive reaction, which is, was very common on the British left. You know, the Soviets are the good guys and the Americans are the bad guys. I think to some extent you can justify that now. But it's, now the, it's, it's, I mean, can you interpret what Russia is doing? Can you interpret Russian foreign policy? I certainly can't. I mean, what we've got, what we've got in Russia now, uh, a, gang, a sort of loose alliance of indigenous fascists, um, nationalists, uh, nativists, um, the, 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 the Russian church. You've got uh, people who, have, I mean, I read a book by the, uh, the guy who, who last year was Putin's deputy. I've forgotten. You know, I've read a lot of books, but I read one. And their view is, Everything between 1917 and uh, 1989 was a disastrous mistake. So if you wipe all that out, what you got before 1917? Well, you've got Russian literature, and you've got the church, and that's all there is. And the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire. There is the Russian Empire, indeed, the old Russian Empire, about which I know very, very little. And this raises another subject. This stuff is now so big. And... There's so much information on the internet. You could just wander off to one of these little paths, mm. and you know, and there it all is. Yeah. So well, I, I, for for in, ter- in terms of Russian uh, foreign policy, just superficially, it seems kind of to me, it seems kind of self-evident that it's. Uh, uh, I think most people in the West even can see this that it's um, that their their policy is to stand up to the West, but cautiously. Well, cautiously, because the Americans have got much many more many yeah. more weapons than they have. But it looks. But another, you can easily interpret Russian behaviour in the last decade in particular uh, that Russia is apparently trying to recreate the old Russian Empire. I mean, it may not. You know, that's what the American. That's what the American right wing says, and mm-hmm. you can make you can make a good case for that. And yeah. you, can make, you, you can make a reasonable case for that. And this guy, Russian, this Russian prime deputy prime minister, is what I read. He was certainly talking about stuff like that. Mm. Russia's faded glory. Can you remember his name? Ah, uh, not even sure I can find his book on my shelf. Well, uh, you keep talking, I'll, I'll scan my shelf, see if I can see the bloody book. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, of course, yeah. I'm sitting with three, I've got 3,000 books in this room, and oh my I'm not God. sure where I filed that. I'm not even sure if I even kept it. You need a librarian. You can't, you can't keep all the books. I've got to get, I haven't got enough room for them. You can find the stuff on the internet easily. Okay, I'll look at yeah. um, the, problem is, the problem on the internet is, of course, is deciding whether the social reading is reliable. Because um, all the websites look the same now. Once upon a time, serious stuff was well produced, well published, well bound, and you could tell it was a serious book just simply by the way it was produced. The, you know, stuff like my, my Little Pamphlets and Lobster Magazine produced with no money, they looked crappy. On the internet now, all websites look great. Mm. 
so the website itself doesn't give you any clues to its possible content. No. So it makes it more difficult, especially for beginners. Oh, yeah. I don't want to insult people. For God's sake, yeah. I've been doing this a long time. And I sometimes think, how would I fare today if I started today? And the answer is, I would be drowning like everybody else is. Mm-hmm. If I was 22, hmm? you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, how just walking away. Yeah, I think people just walk away. There's such a uh, overload of information. Uh, it's too complex. Yes. Yeah. In, I, yeah. mean, I got into this in 1976 when I got into yeah, the total number of books that were worth buying and collecting on, say, um, British parapoets. I think there were three of them, mm. maybe four, and one magazine, uh, State Research, it was called, and there were odd articles in the mutation. Nowadays, there's a subject called um, intelligence, a university subject called a study of intelligence. And there are hundreds of books about MI5 now. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of them. They're all about MI5 50 years ago because they haven't opened the files any later than that, but 50 years ago, taken into the 50s. So this, this, the subject is now utterly unmanageable, preposterously unmanageable. Let me, let me just... Yeah. Let me just... I just wanted to bring up something that... Um, I'd like to try and challenge the idea... I mean, let me first ask you, you, might, you described the intelligence agents in the, in the, in the UK, MI5, MI6, or whatever, most of them as, uh, during the Cold War as being uh, well-intentioned but misguided. Uh, does that hold true to, for, for the yeah. same types today? Today? I'd, my guess would be probably... Uh, probably. Okay. Uh, just, I think there was a big. I think there. Was, I think there was a big clearing out in the 80s uh, when the. I think see, although there's been no official inquiries into the Wilson stuff, the, the Wilson Peter the 70s, the plot thing, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was a big clear out in the 80s and some of the old guard, a lot of the old guard were pensioned off. I think there was a big clear out in MI6 after the Iraq War Day battle. Because mm. went along with all that nonsense, and they got it completely wrong. Mm. And I think if we had if we had access to their personnel rosters, which we don't, but if we had access to their personnel, I think we'd find a lot of the people who were the most enthusiastic supporters of the Iraq War, and there weren't that many in six, I don't think, have been got rid of. Mm. This happens. I mean, it's almost like a purge. If you're on the wrong side of history on something as big as that, then you get you get bumped. Not being bumped off, you get bumped off the list. Or bumped off. So uh, my guess would be, I don't know. I currently do not know any intelligence officers or security officers or policemen. I simply don't need them. Lucky. They may be corresponding with me and them, so I don't recognise. But I simply don't know what they're like. My impression from what I read is they're quite they're quite different now in some ways. Uh, quite different. So. The reason I ask that question is because I've been trying, you know, on and off to me, trying to find evidence of, uh, I suppose what I would describe as conscious evil intent. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very hard to do because I recognize that there's an almost limitless ability amongst human, be- amongst human beings to justify anything to themselves with, with you know, under, under the guise of noble intentions. People can say that, you know, you have to, to make an omelette, blah, 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 all of these ideas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you can justify stuff to yourself, and, and ultimately you can't turn around and say that person consciously knew that they were doing evil and went ahead and did it. But, you know, when I think about, for example, I can't remember her name, the, 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 the old lady who was, it seems, was killed 
by some element of the British. Uh, Hilda Morel. Yeah. Hilda Morel. A, a band of bomb, a CND band, a band anti-nuclear nuclear weapons um, activist, an old lady who mm. no no danger to anybody apparently, mm. but apparently she was mm. a danger to somebody that went and kind of brutally murdered her. Now, how do you justify that? Oh, what, what's could, the narrative? I could, I could, do we do we even know? Well, are we even sure what happened there? No, I'm certain what happened there. I no. mean, her her nephew Rob, uh, her nephew Commander Rob Green, the New Zealand guy. Um, he he, because he was a nuclear submarine during during the Falklands War. His view, I think, is that MI5 or some section of the, the intelligence community got it into their heads that she might have been told by him something naughty about what was happening in the Falklands War. And there's something naughty, I think, we now know what the something naughty was, which was that Mrs. Thatcher threatened nukes on Argentina mm. unless the French government gave them the means, the electronic codes, to, uh, to disable the Exocet missiles. Because mm-hmm. the Exocet missiles were, were starting to sink the British ships. The British came very close to losing that war. Mm. And the turning point was when the Argentine Exocet missiles, the A, the French stopped supplying them, and B, they gave the British, as far as I can tell this is true, they gave the British the means to disable them in, 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 in transit. Mm-hmm. And it's, I have read a couple of occasions which seem fairly reliable that Mrs. Thatcher said to Mitterrand, unless you, let, unless you give us a coach, we're going to use nukes on the Exocet base. At that point, Mitterrand gave her the nukes, gave her the codes. The nukes weren't used. Now, when you think to yourself, what secret in the Falklands War was serious enough that they wanted to suppress, that they would, you know, go to the length of, you know, breaking into an old lady's home in Shropshire? Mm. And it was probably that. Rob Green, I think, I think believes that uh, Hilda Morrell uh, stumbled upon them doing a burglary. And you know, and mm-hmm. they panicked and killed her. Mm-hmm. She was an old lady. It's not difficult to kill old ladies. They mm-hmm. die quite easily, and it looks like a fumble. Right. And then, of course, they, then they do a ridiculous cover-ups and all the usual nonsense. Then takes place. They go into a flap and they panic, and they make things worse. And they cover it up crudely, and then they have to cover it up more thoroughly, and so on and so on. I don't think anybody would justify. I can't imagine anybody in the security services trying to justify the death of Hilda Morell. Mm. in the national interest, except, um, no, no, that's not true. I could imagine somebody justifying it by saying, you know, in terms of uh, something like this, if we think, you know, Britain's greatness, which we must defend, depends upon the possession of nukes, then anything which is a threat to our possession of nukes must be opposed. Mm. And the idea that nukes were, were threatened, the use of nukes was threatened in Argentina might make the British people less enthusiastic about nukes. So, and you can see how the rationale mm-hmm. goes on. It's what you said, there's an infinite capacity mm. to argue that the ends, the ends justify the means. And does the, same but, apl- does the same apply to Dr. David Kelly then? You know what happened? I have no idea what happened to Dr. David Kelly. Do you? I suspect he committed suicide personally. I'm joking. Have you looked at the evidence? Well, 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 put it this way. I mean, four surgeons, uh, four top surgeons said about the cut in his wrist, you know, yeah. hogwash. He never died from that. No he way. Yeah, I know. And he had nothing in his stomach that was in any way uh, an overdose of pills. 
you know, the evidence that he had a heart monitor on him or something when mm-hmm. they found him and then body was moved. I mean, it all points to somebody having bumped him off and botched it. But, I mean, well, and, and obviously the, the rationale for it is that the guy was going to uh, stand up and say, uh, Mr. Blair, your evidence for um, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq is complete and utter horseshit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you might be right, but I, well, I always think about it. I haven't read the Kelly stuff as closely as you have. I know I'm aware of a bunch of uh, surgeons who have um, stats about the evidence. But if you think that you know, trying to commit suicide by cutting the vein on the on the front of your hand uh-huh. is a strange way to commit suicide, it's an even stranger way to fake a suicide. I know. That's why it seems to have been. That's why I don't get about it is how badly they did it because the, the kind of guy I mean, the government would be able to say, go and do a job in this guy. They're usually not yeah, amateurs. They've done it before. They, why didn't they just slash, the, you know, slash his wrists a few times on the under, underneath his arms like you would expect a suicide to look like? Yeah. And then it would, they would all believe it then. But right. you know, he made this funny little cut on his, on his wrist, on the top of his wrist, which didn't see very much. I don't know about I don't know how difficult Dr. David Kelly was in his 60s. He wasn't very healthy, blah, blah, blah. Who knows what it takes to kill a 60 a six, an unhealthy 60-year-old man. I simply don't know. Mm. Uh, they, would they think he was worth bumping off? I personally don't think it's likely. People like Kelly, all you have to do is certain they have pensions. Mm. That's how it works in Britain. Listen, old boy, you see any more, you, you lose your pension. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what, that's what the Peter Wright story is about. They fuck up Peter Wright's pension. You're the man that wrote Spy Catcher. Right. Oh, you're listening to Go can't follow all this. You know, the book that caused the great storm in 1887. Peter Wright thought that his previous employment as a civil servant would be carried forward. <coughs> Excuse me, my bias talking. Would be carried forward into his work with MI5. And he discovered that the previous years didn't count. So he got a pissing little pension. So he was really pissed off. So mm-hmm. he thought, how can I make some money? I could write a book. Yeah. yeah. But if you wanted to threaten David Kelly, not to kill him, you have to say, listen, old boy, um, if you piss about it any longer, well, you know, your pension's in jeopardy. Or mm-hmm. your daughter won't get into the university if she wants to go to. Or, you know, or we'll write stories in the media about your wife. You don't mm-hmm. have to kill people in Britain to keep them quiet. Mm-hmm. And the, very, the mere fact is that the number of people that we could quote of examples of what might be political motives in Britain is tiny. Mm. With Kelly, with that, that the, 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 the NSA guy found him in the hold hall, whose name I've forgotten, right. a few years ago. Yeah. There was that guy in Scotland, there was one guy in Scotland, whose name I can't remember now, who mm. was found by, found by the roadside who might have been shot. Now, having said that, because this excludes Northern Ireland, yeah. you know, there were thousands, thousands of political murders and dozens, hundreds caused by the, or tolerated by the British state. Mm. All these discussions it always exclude Northern Ireland. Yeah, well, I think uh, I've said before but, we we had a, we had a show on on, on the North. Uh, yeah, a, yeah. A guy, a guy on, and he, uh, um, I, I, we kind of agreed that oh, it was actually I don't know if you know her. Um, got a couple of people on. One, of the last one was uh, Anne Cadwallader. She wrote a book uh, just recently. She's a former BBC and RT. Uh, I, yeah, I, I reviewed her book. Yeah, Luke, yeah, Lethal Allies, and. Uh, yeah, yeah. We kind of, it was about the Glenan, the Glenan, the Glenan or the Glenane gang. Yeah. yeah. So we kind yeah. of we kind of agreed with her that um, that Northern Ireland is the is the, is the, is the uh, is the place to look in 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 order to understand uh, as much as of the nature of intelligence agencies in the West. Let's say when it was specific, specifically British ones. 
but also in yeah. terms of trying to make sense of stuff, stuff that's gone on, going on in the world today uh, uh, by, you know, operations or, or wars or conflicts that uh, Western governments or Western militaries are engaged in, and also stuff in the past. I mean, it's, there's so much about Northern Ireland. Uh, I think it's matched in terms of its exposure of the worthiness of... It's certainly in terms of British history, but uh, I want to just move on. I want to quote you something from your latest uh, Lobster Magazine. You obviously know what it is, but you know what it is. Um, it was um, you're quoting a guy from um, a former boss agent, Gordon Winter. What is boss? Gordon mean? Winter. What is BOSS? Yeah, Bureau of State Security. That's a British. Uh, a South African. South African. The South African version of MI5 and MI6 rolled into one. Okay. And he, he said that he quoted him from a BBC TV uh, documentary about British security intelligence services yeah, yeah. Uh, from Panorama. In 1981, he said, this, he said British intelligence has a saying that if there is a left-wing movement in Britain bigger than a football team, our man is the captain or the vice captain. And if not, he is the referee and he can send any man off the field and call our man on at any time. He likes basically he's saying that the British intelligence have complete and utter control of any left-wing movement in Britain. This is in 81. But on, on the basis of that, what is your prognosis for Jeremy Corbyn if he's elected leader of the Labour Party? Um, well, what, what we'd have to say about that, um, first of all, we shouldn't believe what MI5 say about themselves. Right. They're obviously not as good as that. They probably weren't as good as that. Um, there weren't that many groups it, there weren't that many groups involved. There was the CPGB, Communist Party, and then there were the various trots, you know, the, the trots who were opposed to them, the Socialist Workers' Party, uh, International Marxist Group in the 70s, the Workers' Revolutionary Party, those are the two big ones. So it wasn't, you know, okay. And yeah. there's anti-apartheid. There was Ordnum, there was, there was one-off campaigning groups like anti-apartheid and the campaign for colonial freedom. Now, I think all that says, says is they were all infiltrated and it's not difficult to infiltrate a left-wing group. All you have to do is join the fucking thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a famous story of Harry Newton, you know, who, who was outed in the 80s. I wrote about him in Mobster. As a, a, a man who's infiltrating the Institute of Workers' Control and the CND. Yeah, he went along the CND and said, do you want any help? And they said, sure. Can you put these envelopes, you know, put these leaflets in this envelope, you know? You know, you could take over any group, any political group in Britain by volunteering to be the membership secretary, mm-hmm. just doing the jobs nobody else wants to do. So that doesn't may not mean as much as it sounds. Uh, to come back, well, I mean, Corbyn really is. All that Corbyn shows you, it shows, it shows you two things. First of all, the notions of, of Tony Benn never went away in the Labour Party. Corbyn's mm-hmm. a Benite. He said. Mm-hmm. You want to understand Corbyn, read Tony Benn. Um, that's the first part. The second part is, if you understand why he's popular, you have to start looking at the subgroups he's appealing to. He's proposing to have students. Right? People can be students and get grants. That would be popular if I was a student. Um, he's proposing that we don't have to have this austerity and we have to have cuts in welfare payments. If I was unemployed on the, you know, on and take this benefit or whatever, that would be popular with me too. So, it's not remotely surprising that he's popular. Whether or not the state is nervous about him, I doubt it very much. Because the only thing you could, I think you could say for certain would be if, if the Labour Party elect Jeremy Corbyn as their leader, they will not win the next election. 
mm-hmm. because he will not pick up he will not pick up enough votes in the south of England um, to win to win the election. So the British Times must be licking their lips at the thought of Corbyn as a leader. What a minute! That means that you get Corbyn in power, you've got the Tories in office for the next two the next two terms, another ten years, maybe fifteen years. So you know the, the question might be, you know, who's running Jeremy Corbyn? You can ask these kinds of simple questions. You know, what if, if it's not what it looks like, what's really going on? Maybe Corbyn's working for something. You know, I mean, I don't believe that. I mean, I've met Corbyn a long time ago. Corbyn is just what he looks like. Maybe, he looks like. maybe he's a Russian agent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, a lot of things have been said about political parties, opposition parties across Europe and the West in general, and the ideas have been put out there that they're being funded by Russia. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah bring from Russia. Syriza to the right in France. It's a Cold War playbook being opened again, you know. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, I don't know. I haven't researched. I don't know what's being written about uh, Russia's support for political groups in the West. It wouldn't surprise me if they were doing it. Um, I mean, that's how you play the great game. I mean, the Americans are subsidizing everybody everywhere who wants mm-hmm. to oppose the Russians. Mm-hmm. Every, all those color revolutions the Americans organized, the coup, the most recent is the coup in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all, you know, the AED stuff. That's all, you know, that's how the Americans do it. If the Russians are doing the same thing, I'd be the more surprised. But mm-hmm. they haven't got the financial resources no. to do it. They haven't got the infiltration. I mean, the U.S. has, the U.S. and, and the British have, you know, together they have a few hundred years of kind of uh, networks contact. across around the world. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely, and phone contacts and networks, absolutely. So for Russians, it's very, very difficult. Mm. But yes, there are some stories I've seen coming out of America about the Russians approaching various journalists and saying, would you please run this story? And doing it in the very, very crass, very crude, you mm. know, run this story, we'll give you money. We really dumb, 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 dumb. You know, that's not mm. how you do it. Mm. That's not how you do it at all. The Russians would have to have a much longer view of this and set up, you know, fronts and foundations like the Americans and all that stuff. And I haven't seen any evidence that they're doing it. They may be doing it, but I mean, who knows? Maybe they're. I don't. You see, I don't know how smart the Russians are. Mm. I can't get any fix on how clever the people around Putin are. I don't know whether they're just they're just a bunch of crude peasant gangsters that they sometimes appear. I mm-hmm. really can't tell. The KGB certainly were a bunch of smart people by Russian stand by Soviet standards, the KGB were the elite. But I mean, you know, when you read the stuff produced by some of their defectors since eighty nine, it's not that impressive. They didn't have a terribly impressive grasp on world affairs, I don't think. So you know, I don't mm-hmm. think the Russian state's capable of doing this clever in a clever enough way uh, to make any difference. It's it's worthy about imperialism in the modern world, it's America and China, I would have thought. China mm. is the one that's spending the money in the third world now. Yeah. Um, I just want to get a quick uh, take. I don't know how long your answer will be, but what was your take on um, Scottish independence vote last year? <laughs> well, I mean, what happened in Scotland was the biggest act of entryism in history. Essentially, as far as I can understand it, the people that used to be the left wing of the Labour Party in Scotland basically all joined the Scottish National Party and took it over. And never mm. mind the noted tendency in Liverpool in the 80s. I mean, the Labour left took over the SNP. Now, I bet a fair bit of the, uh, the intellectual end of the SNP, and there's a lot of bright people up there. And, but it's very, very striking. In, the, in, in 2015, we're going to be nationalists? Mm. You know, the N-word? 
I mean, me, I'm a nationalist. I'm an old-fashioned. Uh, I'm an old-fashioned economic nationalist. I'm a lefty nationalist. There's only about five of us left in England. Mm. You know, outside the far right. I mean, I don't the BNP and all the rest of it. But you know, in Scotland, suddenly nationalism becomes uh, respectable. Mm. I mean, when I was growing up in Edinburgh in the sixties, the the SNP were a joke. I mean, they walked around wearing tartan, tartan and kilts, and mm. people laughed at them. They were known as the tartan Tories. Mm. But then what happened in the 80s and 90s, which is basically, they were very left, got so distinct, as they would say in Scotland, so scunnered, so by the, the rightward drift of the Labour Party. They all joined the SAP, took it over, and turned it into the left wing of the Labour Party. Mm. It's no wonder that the SNP say, oh, we could, we could work with Jeremy Corbyn. Of course you could. You used to be in the Labour Party. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Given. So, yeah, go on. So I couldn't say, but. Um, I've written in the current issue of Lobster, I don't know how, how to get you are, I wrote in the current issue of Lobster about uh, something that um, Madame Le Pen, the daughter of um, Le Pen, who runs the Front, the Front National in France, mm-hmm. and his daughter, he's an old anti-Semite, and his daughter isn't, who now runs the party. His daughter's not anti-Semite, but she said, you know, the big division these days is between globalization or nationalism. You're either a globalist or you're a nationalist. And I, and I think, and she said, it's left and right, doesn't matter. I don't believe that. I think left and right still matters greatly. But it's certainly the case. You either support the globalization, the movement towards globalization, or you don't. Personally, I don't. I think it's a disaster. Destroy the planet. Quite manifestly, they will destroy the planet. If they have a chance to. They are yeah. doing. Yeah. So, so when I say, and this is roughly, I say, I'm, at that point, I am on the side of Madame Le Pen. And from National. Now, there's hardly anybody in the British left who would say that. But there might be someone in the SNP who would say that. I don't know. They might find Le Pen embarrassing. I don't. I don't know. But in terms, certainly in terms of that big divide between globalisation and nationalism, I'm a national. Given the landslide election results for the SNP, didn't it strike you as peculiar that a minority of those same SNP voters chose not to strike out for independence? Do you mean, do do I think they rigged the referendum? Yes. (laughs) Well, there's some evidence that they rigged the 1975 referendum on the European Union. There's not much evidence, but there's the odd hint. Um, there was quite a lot of chatter in Scotland after the, uh, after the referendum that, they, that the referendum that the people that lost thought they'd been cheated in some way. I don't know how the referendum in Scotland was organised. I don't know how the count was done. In Britain, the count was all it was done nationally. You know, they, they, count, they did the count, the vote count, in Earl's Court in one big room. The whole goddamn thing was counted in one room. They completely ignored the existing you know, local government, national government election structure run by local authorities. It's all sitting there and they bring out every year nowadays have local elections and then every five years they have a national election. It's an old piece of machinery. It works really well. For that one-off referendum, they had to count nationally in Earl's Court and I, I said in love so a couple of years ago, uh, the only reason that I can think of for doing this would be if you wanted to rig it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's all the evidence there is. Do, do I think the British states willing and capable of rigging an election in Scotland on the referendum? Yes, of course they are. Mm. Of course they are. Whether it's technically possible, I don't know. 
Yeah. And all I can say is nobody has produced any good evidence yet that it was rigged. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it might have been, but they're certainly capable of doing it on, big, on the wrong, these really big key issues. Of course they are. The, the state, British state, as it's shown in Northern Ireland, is as ruthless as any other. Exactly, exactly. And they would have had all the motive in the world to do it, should they have wanted to. Um, I'd like to bring up something that I've got a feeling you were probably one of the few people to talk about back in the 80s. Um, and I'm sure you took a lot of flack for it. This is pedophilia in high places. You must be feeling somewhat vindicated by the modern, recent revelations concerning stuff back then in particular. Kinkora uh, et al. Exactly. Well, I, we never wrote... Uh, Lobster never published much about Kinkora. We published a couple of wee pieces. Um, yeah. We Stephen Doyle, who with whom I co-founded the magazine before we fell out, but he wrote a piece very early on, Lobster Free, I think it was in 1984, about Kinkora, which, you know, at the time was as good as you could do it, and he got most of it wrong. But who knows? We were just cutting newspapers in those days and, you know, reassembling bits from magazines and newspapers. Kinkora, I think, is one of the really big things the British state wants to keep quiet. Because Kinkora, you were talking about the idea of evil, the state of doing evil things. If there, if there is a good example of, of other than you know the state running killer gangs in Northern Ireland, uh, if there's a, a, a in the current climate, the fascination with uh, child abuse, there is no sexier or more dangerous subject than the idea that MI5 tolerated the abuse of young men by who knows. Um, the, the rich and the famous, the big wigs of the day, who knows? There's, no, there's nothing more dangerous to them than the idea that that was tolerated in the pursuit, again, back to rationalizing it, in the pursuit of wider objectives, i.e. gaining intelligence on what the prod groups were doing, because mm-hmm. that's what they will claim. We were running this, we were running agents on, in, from Tara, from McGrath and his gang, we were running agents, and you know, we, had to, we had to let them carry on because they were producing valuable intelligence. That's what the rationalization will be. Um, whether I believe that, I don't know. Lobster, truthfully, didn't publish much about Kinkora. We published, we publicized Wallace in 86, 85, 6, 7, 8, 9, I guess, five mm. years, I did it about five years more or less on Wallace and his story. And he was the guy who tried to get the Kinkora thing exposed. And it was, the, it was the Kinkora thing which killed his career and got him framed for manslaughter and all that. So that was sensitive then. It's even more sensitive now. As far as I can see, they're still trying to keep it quiet. They're trying to exclude Kinkora from the, uh, the big inquiry into child abuse in Britain and leave it in a little rigid inquiry in Northern Ireland, which won't have the same powers as the British inquiry. That's the latest. Yeah, mm. but that's that sort of state of play. Um, how important the pedophile story is will turn out to be is I have no idea, truthfully. Mm. Uh, I really don't know. Wallace, I've talked talk to Wallace and he said, yes, they, are, they were hearing in the 70s that people from Kinkora and one or two other children's homes in Northern Ireland, the boys, this is not girls, this is homosexual, beautifully, the boys were being trafficked to England um, to be used for sex parties. Um, beyond that, he doesn't know, he's never heard, he doesn't know who was involved. There's no reliable sources on who were involved, to my knowledge. There's only one source 
Richard Kerr, I think his name is, who was talking about it, that to my knowledge, he hasn't identified anybody amongst the people who, who were abusing him. If we indeed believe him, I don't know whether we believe him or not. Um, the problem nowadays is, um, look at the Virginia Savile, for example. These days, if you go along to the, the lawyers who are working for the Jimmy Savile victims and say, well, he abused me in Pop of the Pop studio in 1973, they're going to say, okay, fine, money. That's all it takes. All you have to do is prove you're in the, in the right vicinity and you will become a bona fide victim. There's no other criteria being used. And a, it's an Australian law firm who's taken over the job. They bought the British firm that was running the family estate, and they're going to empty the family estate of every penny, and it will be divvied up, minus the lawyer's big fees, of course, amongst hundreds of people who claim to be being abused by family. Some of them will have been, lots of them probably won't have been, they're just opportunists. You always get this, opportunists and fantasists, but basically opportunists. If, if, the, if you say to people, oh, if you've been abused, you'll get compensation, here come the people who claim they've been abused. Yeah. I think uh, I think just to answer my own question about the yeah, um, do answer your own question. You can probably do better than me. I was going to answer my own question about the about that idea of uh, people creating a narrative, having this having this almost limitless limitless ability to create a an, a benevolent narrative um, for what uh, officially or otherwise would be seen as a kind of evil deed. I think. You know, obviously you can can always find or find a way to excuse someone who's done something that is technically evil or officially evil by saying, well, he was misguided or his his, his intentions were good. Um, but I think that doesn't really apply. I think I can still label these people as evil because most people, when faced with that choice between, let's say, um, you know, furthering the interests of the British state uh, and killing someone who is effectively innocent, people would go for, well, screw the British state, I'm not going to kill someone. Uh, so people who make the choice for killing someone in the interest of some broad kind of interest of, of, of the British state or, or, or progress of, or, or the interest of British government or whatever, I mean, those people are evil. That's, that's a moral line that they have crossed there that puts them in a category of people that uh, makes them very different, I think, from... Uh, the ordinary person in the street who would say, no, I'm going to draw the line at killing someone who doesn't deserve to be killed, who has, has done nothing wrong. I'm not going to use this person and use their death uh, and, and misrepresent their death in the interest of some kind of airy-fairy, you know, intangible almost kind of uh, uh, benefit to, to, you know, to the state. I mean, that for me, that doesn't fly. I mean, because I'm kind of undercutting my own argument because I, I look at, try to look at things in two ways and I try and say, well, how can I justify, how can I understand the justification for what these people have done? But at the same time, I'm not willing to take that so far where I would uh, excuse well, them uh, for, for acts well, of murder well, in the interest yeah, of something stupid, really. Well, all right. Let's do, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to stop fairly soon because I'm really yeah. I'm losing my voice here. But let's go back to the idea of um, you know, killing an innocent person. You end up with a kind of moral calculus and... It's not these people aren't the man or woman in the street. These are people engaged in long, complicated operations. For example, the best example I can think of off the top of my head is it is now widely reported, I don't know whether it's true or not, it is now widely reported, or has been widely reported, that Jerry Adams, Jerry Adams and Martin McGinnis made some kind of approach 
to the British state quite a long time ago, maybe early 80s, 83, 84. They could see the writing on the wall. They could see that the war wouldn't win. And they, they approached maybe that man, which is named Alan, who was the MI6 guy who was sniffing around in Northern Ireland. They approached mm-hmm. some six guys who were an intermediary and said, uh, listen, guys, uh, we know the war can't be won, and so you know, we have to move towards some kind of peace deal. In these situations, there's always somebody who does that. You know, Joe Kenny Atta and There's always mm-hmm. somebody who ends up as you know, the, the transitional figure who right. moves, from, moves from being terrorist to politician. Now, in the reports I've seen, it's quite frequently stated that this was done, this, these, these moves were made, and the British state then began clearing the path for Adams and McGuinness, and that probably involved killing people or letting people be killed. Mm-hmm. In other words, you, you, you start editing, start right. filtering out the IRA leadership to make sure that Adams and McGuinness have no opposition. Now, in terms of moral calculus, uh, what's three or four? What's three or four dead Irishmen compared to 200 dead Irishmen? Yeah. That's the problem yeah. with the moral calculus stuff or the utilitarian yeah. argument. Yeah. And these the people who are engaged in this stuff often end up having to make these decisions. Yes, this guy doesn't deserve to die, but his death will further our cause. Quite greatly, and sometimes, you know, very, very greatly, very, very greatly indeed. And so I'm glad I'm not having to make those decisions. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't yeah. do it at all. I mean, God, God Almighty, just putting out an issue of loss that used to give me the shits. I used to be the most terrible, you know, a deadline approached. My colon would go into the spasms and I'd be shitting blood. I couldn't handle the agents for five minutes. Yeah. The stress would have killed me. Yeah. So these are, these are strange people. I don't know how you do this stuff. But some people do it. And I'm sure they would always in the end have a rationalization for what they did. They would produce some calculus, some model from calculus. You'd say, well, look, I did X, but it had good consequences. And if I hadn't done X, it would have had very, very bad consequences. But evil is done, no matter no matter what their uh, rationale. I mean, I can think go back to the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials and mm-hmm. watch his face sitting there in front of the camera, justifying what's his name at the Nuremberg trials. The guy, uh, the German. Hess. Hess. Which one? There was well, one, the, the one that, them. yeah, well, the one that um, they made a film about yeah. it. They made a film about it, and uh, are you thinking of Eichmann? Eichmann. He came later. Eichmann later. Yeah. In Israel. Yeah. He retired in Israel, yeah. That's the right, yeah. You know, given these banal kind of reasons for, for, for what he did, you know, and yeah, I mean, I think you can excuse the person, but also say that evil was done. Evil was done. I think that you can say that. I mean, Eichmann's probably not a very good... Well, again, go back and look at the Nazis, you know, people mm-hmm. in the group of theories. I mean, they all genuinely... They all had lots of them, at the higher level of the SS and the Hitler's regime... They all, they all seem to have genuinely believed that theory about the Jews, how it was corrupting and Jew, American right. society, blah, blah, blah. They really believe that shit. Yeah. You know, and equivalent, I guess, you know, the people that take the Koran literally, all the bits yeah. of the Koran that suit them, take it literally and think they have some rational, some, you know, ethical, moral reason to kill the non-believers. You know, it's, people in the grip of theories are terribly dangerous people, um, which is, I guess, one of the things lobsters tried to do line, Walter never really had a line 
um, except I lost it only had methodological line. If you're going to say it, where's the footnote? Show me the evidence. Um, this, of course, is the internet because the internet is covered in stuff and there's no evidence for most of it yeah. in these kind of fields anyway. Yeah. That's the problem with it. That's the problem with it. This is why, you know, um, and that's, again, we come back to what I said earlier. If I was 20 years old looking at all this stuff, you know, how, how would you sort out the ship from the Shinola? I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the internet is a very odd phenomenon and may, may in the long run prove to be fantastically dangerous to human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastically dangerous. It already it is. is. It already is. It already is. What people use it for. Well, I mean, most human beings on the planet are not intellectually equipped to handle large quantities of data of no. any kind, let alone political data, let alone religious political data, uh -huh. in, any, in any sensible way. And yet, you know, they have, you know, two clerics away, here you go, you know, anything, any nonsense in the world. And it no longer has an official stamp of nonsense. This is very, very striking. This has never happened in human history before, because there used to be an academy of one kind or another which stamped nonsense on things. Most recently, it was the universities, the higher media, the government, the BBC, you know, they would, they would arbitrate between nonsense and not, and not nonsense. And that's all gone now. It's all gone. And I, I don't know what I don't know where it's going to take us. I mm. really don't know. I suppose we'll find out one way or another. If I live long enough, I'm 67, guys. I mean, uh, I'm not going to live that much longer. The internet's just getting started. Yeah, I don't know. I think it'll all go pear-shaped long before you slip <laughs> slip off well, that motor coil. That might be the case. I mean, I was in the, I was part of the first green wave in 1969-70 when we thought the world was going to come to an end under pollution and overpopulation and all the rest of it. Yeah. And uh, it hasn't yet. But most of the things that are being predicted now about the population rising and the seas polluted and the air polluted and the salt polluted, that has all been talked about in the late 60s. And not because nobody took any notice at the time because yeah, they just left by a new car. You know, mm -hmm. Uh, still nothing being done about it. I mean, I, I don't know what it will take. This is, we're straying off topic, I'm sorry. No, I'm I, I still I said thinking, which thing, what single event will it take to persuade people to do something about CO2 emissions, for example? You know, I don't know, Venice sinks in the sea. I don't yeah. know. I mean, the, the, the town I live in, Hull, we're at sea level. If the, if the water rises 10 inches, you know, most of the city vanishes. You're moving back to Scotland. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, I'll move up the hill. Move up the nearest hill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, Robin. Guys, uh, guys I'm going to have to stop my Yeah, absolutely. Don't want to keep you in. I know you're not, not feeling the best. Mm -hmm. I hope you get better soon. I hope we get kicked out uh, whatever it is that's bothering you. Oh, oh man, I think this virus is forever. <laughs> well, hopefully <laughs> not. But uh, listen, I just want to... I just want to thank you for, for, for being on and commend you for your work in Lobster. I mean, you're one of the few people who've been doing this day in, day out almost for well, you know, several I, decades. There's not many. Well, there's Bill Bloom. I know you had Bill Bloom on the meal blooms. I mean, I, he's been significant work that I haven't written much at a book tonight, but he's one of the people I identified with. Bill's been banging away yeah. at it, you know, for a long time. I have. God bless him. But it's that persistence. That is, that is pretty rare, you know, and uh, yeah. you, ha you have it, you well, know. And I just want to tell people, just want to say to our listeners as well, that they need to check out your website, lobster-magazine.co.uk. Just put it, go to Google, put Lobster Magazine, lobster. you'll find it. And sign up. I'm going I'm to sign up. It's, a lot of it's for free, but I'm going to sign up for a subs subscription because you get the goodies, don't you? Well, wink, 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 the, way not, it, not. The, 
<laughs> the way it works is it's all the current stuff's all free. If you want to look at the older stuff before issue 56, I think it is, uh, you can buy a CD ROM with it all on, or you have, I think, you can pay out of, what is it, five pounds a week yeah. or something for a week. Okay. You can run me through for a week for almost nothing. The, the little, bits of, little bits of money people pay, pay for the website. Nobody's yeah. ever made any money out of what? Yeah, it's for a very good cause. Not very fair. good cause anyway, so that's what I'm saying, telling our listeners today. Good cause. So thank you guys for having me on. All right. Take care, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Take care yeah. of yourself. All right, bye-bye. Cheers, bye. That was Robin Ramsey editor and founding publisher of Lobster Magazine. It's been around 1983. That's 32 years, Joe. Well, we're going to be doing this for 32 years. It's crazy, yeah. But just before we, we discuss maybe a couple of things that he was talking about there, because um, they were kind of interesting, we're going to have a little uh, musical interlude uh, right now to keep you all uh, fresh and happy. So uh, I'm not sure what, what it's going to be because our music guru as soon as I've you're born, but... they make you feel small By giving you no time instead of it all Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be Working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home And they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever And they despise a fool Till you're so fucking crazy You can't follow their rules Working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be When they tortured and scared you for twenty odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function, you're so full of fear A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV You think you're so clever and classless and free But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be room at the top they are telling you still but first you must learn how to smile as you kill 
want to be like the folks on the hill A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be If you want to be a hero well just follow me If you want to be a hero well just follow me That was Mr. Lennon who our friend the musician guru Oh yeah Yeah, singing working class hero. If you want to be, if you want to be a hero, follow me. Just follow me. That's what he's saying, right? Yeah, that's a bad idea. I think he's being sarcastic. Oh, good. A working class hero is about all you're ever going to be. Okay. So that's who the heroes are. Collective of working class heroes. They together create a a big hero. Yes, it's communist. It's a social called. complex hero. Social complex hero. Well. You know, I'll take any heroes that come along these days, but then I'll just ignore them, usually, uh, right off the bat. Uh, you start criticizing them, left, I'll right, and center. I'll start. I'll start being suspicious of them, digging up their past, digging up their past. You no, know, I don't do that. <laughs> but I just don't trust any because, uh, yeah. Well, that's because you have to search for the hero inside yourself. Yeah. I hear, isn't there a song "A Hero Lies in You" or something? There is. By some. Uh, I was American quoting M People. Woman. Yeah, you got to search for the hero inside yourself. Uh huh. Yeah, a hero lies in you. Uh, whatever. Keep. Yeah, that's 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 good. Good. A uh, good message. Yeah, hero lies in yourself. You know, sort your life out and be your own hero type thing. In that respect, uh, problem with looking to heroes in the world is that there's an a lot of projection involved. And we were talking about projection on the show with uh, Robin there, and um, uh, they. These kind of heroes can never live up to the projection that people project onto them, and when they don't live up to it, when some flaw is discovered, uh, then it's like horrible. It's all it's all it's black and white thinking. It's all it's all wrong. You know, they fall from grace, and you're devastated. And until the next one comes along, people just go from hero to hero. You know, uh, and never seem to realize that you know you really do have to be. I mean, you don't. I don't know about needing heroes. Pick someone who's dead. And then you can project everything you want onto them, uh-huh. you know, uh, and people who you can't find anything bad about, you know, who are dead. Th- th- this should be heroes. So historical figures should be heroes for people, not living people, you know, because there's too much in this mixed orbit. There's too much uh, propaganda and stuff, and it can all be smeared and taken down by anybody, and then you're in trouble, you know. But um, yeah, Robin's a good guy, and he's been doing it, like we said, for a long time. Uh, there's a show. I don't know if anybody is interested in it. It's maybe not interesting to a wide audience. It's quite particular. It's called Intelligence Services, and it's on YouTube, and it's on a show that was that used to air on on British TV Channel Four, and it was it started at midnight every night, and it was basically famous people from different disciplines, and usually one member of the public as well, and they'd sit there around a table uh, at night from midnight for about three hours usually. And they would talk about a particular topic, and they discussed some edgy topics. And he was on that show in 1986 or seven, I think, on intelligence services. And they had a politician, Merlin Rees, who's a scumbag, and he's dead now, so we can call him that, and uh, and and a few other 
uh, private investigator and a few other guys who were former British intelligence agents. And then you had Robin sitting there who had all the dirt on the, all these people, you know. And it was an interesting conversation from that point of view, you know. Uh, there's some, you know, like what I was trying to say to him in the in the show was at least historically, British intelligence agents come from uh, Oxford and Cambridge and Eton. They're old colonial family boys type thing. And they're, there's a very strong current of racism running uh, amongst them and elitism. Um, and that's not good in terms of their dealings with people that they deem to be lesser people. Yeah. Uh, that's a recipe for, for trouble, you know. Um, but it's also true to a certain extent, and we didn't, I didn't want to talk, I didn't want to push Robin on this because he was he's not feeling well and would have taken too long, but <clears throat> he mentioned that in talking about the internet, the vast majority of people in this world are not capable for digesting a massive amount of complex information and trying to make sense of it, which is true. And most people, and the truth of that is seen by most people staying well away from <laughs> anything that would force them to consider complex information that's very it hurts their brains and they don't want to do it and they just busy themselves with normal things, normal life. And that is true and I think it's a kind of empirically true. It's a true from a you know a a, 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 a species perspective, you know, of, of the human race. And um but that then also opens up the idea, which it seems to be also equally true, is that there are certain people who can do that who can absorb complex information and deal with the big questions. And they're the ones who should be the leaders of these people, the vast, you know, the, the great unwashed of the masses who don't want to look at that information. So that seems to be almost a, a default written into the code, the base code of humanity of the of, matrix of human, of human Sorry. life on earth is that there is always going to be a hierarchy. And even if it's a small community, there's going to be, kind of leaders or elders, you bring it out to multi-million, tens of millions of people in the country, there's going to be leaders. So, the, yes, the, kind the, of, the, the program allows for the leadership being of sound mind or deviant. Well, the problem is that it should be of sound mind for the world to be a nice place to live in. That, that um, kind of um, prime directive almost where you, it's written into that code kind of thing where any human life, any human society on planet Earth is going to have that kind of hierarchy. Um, where people take control, there are certain leaders, controllers, whatever. Um, the the people who argue against that, anarchists and, and and different types of people who want to just level everything. This was a, a an accusation thrown at the communists as well. You know what I mean? That that was totally wrong headed and, and anti uh, kind of anti human nature, effectively. Uh, that you couldn't have a uh, the rule of the working man type thing of, of the proletariat, you know, because those people are the people who just want to go and do their daily job and don't want to be bothered with the complex questions of how to run a country finance and, and international relations. Figure it all out, yeah. right? Uh, so that seems to be true, you know, so anarchists and those kind of communistic ideas are, uh, aren't are going to work, are never going to work. Um the other end of the scale is where you have people who rise into those or, or take those positions of leadership or power and are fundamentally um, un, un, unempathic or have very little empathy for other human beings. People who assume those positions of leadership, by definition, need to have a, quite a strong 
along with their strong leadership skills, they need to have strong empathic abilities and a, a strong sense of caring for the people uh, over whom they are kind of ruling or governing or taking decisions for, you know. And you'd think that it would go with, with, the, with the two because well, both of them would go together because a person who has the abilities to, to rule should also understand the reason or the difference between him or her and the people below him, let's say below in quotes, uh, that, that they do need a guardian. So there should be a natural, benevolent attitude and feeling towards those people. And in that scenario, it all works very well. It's like a parent-child relationship to a certain extent. The problem is when, when you've got people who are psychologically deviant in that way and effectively not really human in, in the normal sense of the word and, and have, um, you know, have psychological issues that, that aren't apparent in the normal way, they don't, don't look crazy and stuff, but they're effectively, here obviously we're talking about the idea of psychopaths and stuff, and when you get that kind of situation, it's horrible, you get massive abuse, you get, uh, you know, parents of a child who are abusive to the child, and I think that's what we have today, you know, uh, and that's the major problem. But it seems like you said it's also written into the code of this matrix or this system where that is allowed for and that can happen. Yeah. And as hard as it is I, to believe, given how far we are into one version of that, yeah. there were times and there are apparently pockets on the planet where the code is still uh, aligned, working in, a, in the other direction. I mean, I'm thinking of in the East, Russia and China. Um, yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, so this, but well, this opens it up. This opens up. The, um, this opens it all up beyond issues of ideology, issues of foundational beliefs that govern a whole country, like America's manifest destiny. Mm. This opens it up beyond ethnicity mm. because, and it opens it up beyond genetics mm. because nothing is determined. And ultimately, everything in this world, the complex information we're talking about is all coming through all of us. Mm. And as such, it is not inherent to any of us. Mm. Um, What can you say? What can you say from that? It means that there is enormous potential for development and growth, even as hard as it is to see any of that in uh -huh. the world today. It's so contractile. Uh -huh. It's so the, the forces at work that we are, are visible and tangible to people mm. are so rapacious. Mm. Uh, well, if if the goal, well, we can assume the goal built into the system here on on planet Earth. Uh, involving the human population is for them to to, to learn to grow and learn about uh, the works and all the different experiences and everything that can manifest in this planet. People should ultimately, uh, or in theory, get to understand how it all works. If the way that we have posited uh, is how the world works, but there's this hierarchical structure that's natural, but it can be you can have benevolent leaders or you can have evil leaders. Well, that is something that people need to understand. People need to understand that about the system. If people only grew up in a society where they had benevolent leaders, you'd have people with a rather naive view of the world. 
and they would be uh, quite vulnerable to being exploited if they moved to, like, say, another society or whatever in, in the world where there was a, a, a selfish, evil leader. So in that sense, it all serves learning and it's necessary. Even these evil leaders provide very uh, useful, important and essential even uh, learning opportunities for the people on the planet who are all the 99% or whatever you want to call them. These are all experiences that are provided by this evil leadership about the nature of the world. Mm-hmm. It's not pleasant, but how else are they going to learn that that's the nature of the world? So it's not something that you can change or should change because those are the default settings of this planet. That seems to be the case. That's just a kind of fairly objective, I think, observation of, on a broad scale of, of the conditions on this planet. And the um, people want to change it, turning it into a, some kind of a utopia misses the point, you know. I mean, you could even take an example of someone you know who had quite a hard uh, upbringing from somewhat abusive parents, not to the point that they were turned crazy or whatever, but uh, compare that kind of a person to someone who had a, an idyllic up, upbringing. And you can see that they're very, there's a lot of differences between those two kind of people and their worldview. But at the very least, each of them have uh, um, learned valuable things about the world from a idyllic upbringing and an abusive upbringing. And you could even say that the people who are brought up uh, with a, in a somewhat abusive family environment are, to a certain extent, stronger people. They've been kind of, you know, uh, tested, I suppose, or had something, some kind of resolve, or uh, that can have a negative side as well. But certainly, people in an idyllic environment where they never had any, uh, uh, never saw any violence, or never were treated badly, were always treated perfectly as wonderful, perfect little children, they have a lot of feelings in, in, in a certain sense uh, as a result of that upbringing, or can have. Um, Mm-hmm. So there's no way to say that. I'm just trying to say here that it's you know utopia sucks because you can't grow from it. <laughs> yeah, that's maybe the short, that's one short version. Hard. Big extraction. It would suck. It does certainly suck in as a as equipping in terms of equipping people with tools that they need to live in this world to live successfully and not be exploited in this world. You need to know uh, about violence. And, 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 and suffering and, and difficulty because that's the nature of this world you need to know how to survive that to survive in this world you need to have learned some uh, or had some experience of suffering and survived it to equip you to do it because there's people who have who for whatever reason had no suffering as they were brought up in perfect childhood and go out into the world and the first thing that comes along to uh, to shock them or some first bit of suffering they, had, they experience it, they kind of fall apart you know as an adult you know so, yeah, it all sucks. So, I'm not saying it doesn't suck. It all sucks. Just in case anybody wonders. Um, Do we have any other items we want to discuss today, or is it time to? I don't know. Um, I don't think there's much has happened. There's the, obviously the China thing that happened this week. Kaboom! Kaboom's flat. Uh, that bears, you know, what was it? I think it's cyanide, sodium cyanide. 700 tons of sodium cyanide is what they're saying. Sodium cyanide is obviously a version of cyanide, which is a poison. About a quarter of a gram of it 
will kill you. And 700 tons of it <laughs> blew up, yes. or at least a, a part of 700 tons of it blew up on that harbour. They were planning to put it in the ships and send it to America. To, yeah, it was a plot, it was wasn't a it? Plot, a Chinese plot to kill all Americans. But the CIA 700 the tons was far too much. Uh, no, I'm joking. Yeah. It, um, um, no, apparently it was, that was 10 times more the maximum limit for that amount of sodium cyanide at that you know, st- stocked anywhere in China was 70 tons and they had 700. Of course, they're looking here for reasons why it was so it kaboom, But I'm sure that wasn't the first time they had stocked 700 tons of a, of a kind of dangerous chemical in that port. Uh, China stocks <laughs> large quantities, as you can imagine, of all sorts of things. Um, so the question remains, why did it blow up? And I don't think you can just say, oh, it was too much of that when more than likely the same amounts have been stored many times previously. Um, it reminded us of the West Texas, not West Texas, but a town called West in Texas. Uh, last year, I think, was it last year? No. Two years ago? 2013. Two years ago, uh, where a fertilizer plant blew up uh, that was storing ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate was also stored at this port, so they're not sure about the cyanide thing. That's what they're saying, sodium cyanide, but ammonium nitrate was still was stored also at the port in China. So there seems to be, well, when we look at the, when we look at um, this explosion, when we look at the Texas explosion, the fertilizer plant was where they were storing ammonium nitrate. Um, we kind of at the time had the idea that it was maybe some kind of a space rock flew down and blew it up because there were some little signs of flashes here and there that could have been something else. Other people have said something similar. Um, but there have been a lot of different kind of explosions and booms and sinkholes uh, around the world over the past few years that are all suggestive, are suggesting that um, there's something going on under the planet and also there's something going on in the skies. Uh, so we're leaving it open at this point that this kind of, I think it's fair to say it's an anomalous explosion in, uh, in the Chinese port. Uh, yeah, it was extremely powerful blast. Um, it was unusual and it was extremely, extremely powerful and also unusual because I don't think they've had any explosions at that port before. It's not something, and I don't think no, I can but remember any... chemical factories have exploded in China in recent years. Yeah. Maybe not in that fashion, though. Right. So it's unusual, but I suppose when anything like, like that blows up so spectacularly and I mean, there's over 100 people dead now, and it's amazing that it happened where it happened in a port in the middle of the night that would have been relatively uh, sparsely, sparsely uh, populated with people in the middle of the night. And also, you don't have people in the port area. You don't have residential housing right there. Uh, if it had of They were fairly close by, though. There were towers. Yeah, there were, yeah. Apartments. But given the size of it, uh, 21, I think 21 tons of TNT, they, they said, equivalent, uh, and about four, like 500 meter radius, pretty much everything was devastated. If that kind of thing had happened downtown, mm-hmm. anywhere, or closer in a populated area, you'd have thousands and thousands of people dead, you know, and especially in China where the cities are very densely populated. Tian, Tianjin is, has 15 million people, you know. For what it's worth, the name of the city means heavenly ford. Yeah, not so heavenly these past few days. Um, yeah, so it could be... Uh, one to watch. Chemical plants are one to watch for explosions. Yeah, there seems to be a natural cause 
well, unnatural in the sense that it's relatively novel. Yeah. It's not normal for this to happen. No. Out of the blue. No. But natural in the sense that something's a play, in this case, probably in the ground. Yeah. Um, three days prior, an entire metro station in another Chinese city just was eaten up by the earth, That's killing cool. a man. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, they're unlikely to give out any information that would show anything other than a it's accident. Worse than that, they're unlikely to have any idea that it could have right. been anything other than an accident. But if they do so come across it as part of an investigation, you know, I mean. When the, um, there was a massive explosion in Brooklyn, I think, last year. Do you remember CCTV video where said it was gas guys walking explosion. down the street and a gas explosion obliterated two, two blocks, not two blocks, but two apartment buildings on, on a block. And uh, casual reports, I mean, they didn't try to cover anything. They just noted that there was a sinkhole in front of it that appeared at the same time. Unrelated, it wasn't like the center of the blast or anything. Mm -hmm. It was a sinkhole. Mm -hmm. And in addition, they also reported later that there were unusually high readings of methane gas in the area, right. unrelated to actual gas being piped right. through the buildings. Right. No. Yeah, it's, it's it's strange. I mean, there's so many, but at this point, with what the Earth seems to be doing, there's so many ways that you can, uh, or so many possibilities for these kind of explosions and things to, to happen uh, that are a function of that kind of opening up or whatever you want to call it of the Earth, the way you have sinkholes everywhere and gas leakings and um, just weird things. Like, I mean, when you're talking about. Uh, that event on, on a beach a couple of months ago in uh, somewhere in uh, North Rhode Island. Rhode Island, yeah, where there was an explosion just on a clean beach out of the sand, apparently. Uh, a loud explosion occurred. No flame or anything like that, but it blew one woman who was right beside it 10 feet in the air. I mean, when you, when you, when you have to consider that, you know, mysterious, invisible explosions that leave no trace of any burning, no debris, nothing, just a loud bang that blows people away, blows people up in the air. Uh, and then you see explosions like this in, in China. Well, I mean, it's anybody's guess. This is, appears to be a science, a natural earth science that is, uh, has been previously unknown, <laughs> really, you know, this is science, you know, where the ground can just suddenly blow up without actually blowing up. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, there's another instance, um, this string of what I call crater holes appearing in Russia, particularly in the north in Siberia, Yamal, mm -hmm. where the ground seems to, something detonates like a pocket of gas. And not just in any kind of random way, it seems to happen in such a way to form these perfectly uh, cookie-cutter holes yeah. that leave a crater rim around the side, scorch marks mm -hmm. <laughs> on the side of this chasm. What the hell are they? They, they suspect the only connection they've made with anything else that's known is that there may be similar type holes that formed in that identical height. They're identical, but they formed thousands of years ago. Mm. And they're associated with the previous ice age. Mm -hmm. So it's evidence of a new ice age. Exactly. Ergo. Ergo. Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, just have to keep watching people. That's all it's about. I mean, it's not so much figuring uh, as as watching what goes goes on. It may all become clear 
after a period of time when everybody's dead, maybe. But <laughs> in the meantime, there's crazy stuff going on and uh, stuff that has, hasn't been seen, certainly in anybody's lifetime and certainly probably in, in modern history. It's not recorded anywhere. There seems to be stuff happening on the planet, in the planet and above the planet that is uh, highly unusual. Yeah, there's rainfall happening now that no one alive today has ever seen. Right. When a meteor can fall on a place that's bone dry in 10 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I mean no, one, no one alive has any conception of that until they see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no records, there's no science to explain it. Yeah. But we've given it a good try. But Well, they make up science as they go along, of course. Yeah. And then tell you that they knew about this all along. But it's, yeah, it's just, it's in our latest edition of the science book that we published the day after it happened. Yeah, I often go, when someone refers me to a Wikipedia page, I go to it and say, oh, I see, they're called frostquakes, are they? Yeah. And you look at when the page was created, two weeks old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> frostquakes. Anyway, um, I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks, but not before we have another from our old friend, very old friend. Very old. Like ancient our ancient friend Relic who well you know what he does by this stage let's see what he's going to do this week and greetings one and all it's old Relic here once again coming to you from my rugged little log cabin nestled amongst the stunted pine trees atop the frigid rocky shores of Upper Lake Canada. It's a lonely old place where the devil himself comes for vacation from time to time when hell freezes over. We got a good show lined up for this week in another marvelous edition of Pop Culture Roundup where we'll take our economy-sized bottle of Tide detergent and head down to the five-star laundromats of Beverly Hills and see if we can't remove those stubborn stains from all that celebrity dirty laundry. Our first story for the evening is a veritable Tex-Mex restaurant burrito-fueled septic system of all that is wrong with this crazy mixed-up world. According to movie pilot website, a certain Miley Cyrus fan, fan being short for fanatic, a gentleman named Mr. Carl McCoy, a 42-year-old businessman from East Yorkshire, has spent over $5,000 getting himself inked with 29 different Miley Cyrus tattoos. Well, after Miss Cyrus, the teen twerking sensation, called Mr. McCoy the creepy and ugly stalker in a recent interview, it seems that this poor fella, the Hannah Montana superfan, has now changed his mind about his body art and plans to have all the tattoos removed so that he can re-enter the dating scene. Well, that seems about as likely as a bus full of nuns ending up on Girls Gone Wild. 
as regrets go, I suppose using your middle-aged Caucasian body as a canvas to display 29 tattoos of a mannish tween tops them all. Relic, for one, thinks that Miss Cyrus may have been a little too harsh on poor Mr. McCoy, as he may be the only fan this crazy, tongue-twerking pop idol has left once she completes her downward Lindsay Lohan-esque flame-out spiral into drug-fueled mayhem, hardcore Disney pornography, and general obscurity. Such is the celebrity cycle of life. In other news, Gawker website is reporting that iconic flip-flop artist Curtis Jackson known in celebrity circles as the 50 Cent, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in a Connecticut courtroom, claiming that he has completely broke. Rumor has it that the former multimillionaire, famous for his 2007 hit single, I Get Money, must have squandered all his fortune on a series of bad investments that include a fast-food franchise that makes diamond-encrusted yogurt smoothies and stocking up his mansion with gold-leaf toilet paper and then making a hefty donation to Donald Trump's presidential campaign which can only lead us to conclude that the rapper 50 Cent must have zero cents, both literally and figuratively. Alas, not to worry. After he engaged in some freestyle rapping for a few minutes on a subway platform, Mr. Curtis Jackson has happily gained back some of his fortune and now wants to be known as the rapper 75 Cents. Turning now to some celebrity real estate news, handsome Scientologist and asymmetrically toothed Hollywood hunk Mr. Tom Cruise is advertising the sale of his 300-acre ski lodge estate in Telluride, Colorado. Boasting a 10,000-square-foot house with seven bedrooms, it is only accessed by a mile-long private drive. This paranoid luxury estate can be yours for only $59 million. Apparently, Mr. Cruz plans to use the money from the sale to build a $10 million underground bunker to protect him and his family from an alien invasion. True story. However, it seems that Mr. Jerry Maguire has been experiencing some difficulty selling the chalet property. Because every time a potential buyer shows up to see the house, he scares them away by answering the door wearing nothing but a tinfoil hat and screaming the phrase, Show me the money! Show me the money! In a related story, the Mad Hatter himself, Mr. Johnny Depp, has also listed a substantial property for sale. A 200-year-old village estate 
in the St. Tropez region of the French Riviera. One of the reasons Edward Scissorhands gave for divesting himself of the 37-acre estate is that the property is located just 30 miles east of a chateau owned by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolly. And so Mr. Willy Wonka was upset because he wasn't able to get a good night's sleep on account of the constant wailing of the neglected Brangelina orphans. In addition to that, the Donnie Brasco actor expressed some chagrin that St. Tropez is not actually located in the Caribbean Sea. And now all his neighbors keep referring to him as that pirate of the Mediterranean. Here is an actual sample of Mr. 21 Jump Street's winning sales pitch to prospective property buyers. When you marooned me on that godforsaken spit of land, you forgot one very important thing, mate. I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. We hear it behind the headlines are surprised to learn that, as of this recording, neither of the above properties has yet been sold. In our last story for the evening, our hearts go out to the family of B-movie actor and WWF superstar Mr. Rowdy Roddy Piper who passed away recently in his home in Hollywood at the age of 61. Famous as a wrestling icon and named one of the top 50 WWF villains of all time, Mr. Piper was remembered by his friends as being generous, authentic, and sincere. On the silver screen, Mr. Piper was best known for his role in the John Carpenter science fiction classic movie, They Live, which tells the story of a nameless drifter who discovers by putting on a pair of special sunglasses that the elite ruling class are in fact aliens concealing their monstrous appearance behind a facade of fake skin. A mask of sanity, if you will. And who manipulate people to breed, spend money, and blindly obey their rulers using subliminal messages in mass media. Science fiction, my ass, sounds more like science non-fiction to me. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And that, dear listeners, brings us to the end of another show for this week. There's a fire burning low. There's a warm feather bed somewhere with my name on it. So, until next time, it's old relic here saying, uh, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. Okay, thanks for that, Rod. That was a... Uh... As usual, very informative, and I now no longer need to even look at pop culture, celebrity gossip type things because I got it all right there in about five minutes. That's the service he offers. It's a it's a humanitarian service, really. Anyway, um, a week without relic is a week that didn't exist. Yes, at least in the pop culture world. Exactly. So.
we're going to leave it there for this week folks thanks to our listeners and thanks to Gwen Ramsey again um, and to our chatters we were all having lots of fun I think we'll be back next week with another show same time same place till then have a good one see you next week bye bye <laughs>